I didn't know about the North American model of wildlife conservation until I started working for OHA. So in my mid forties, right. Um, and I had to learn really, really fast about it. And it's amazing. I, I think, I think it's an amazing way to manage wildlife. And I'm really like passionate now about every new hunter needs to understand this. It's not just go buy your license and your tag and, and put a, animal in your freezer. I mean, that's the goal, but you've got to understand, in my opinion, you got to understand the underpinnings of it all. Um, because if you don't, then you don't understand the funding structure for ODFW and you don't understand the, con the, the real conservation work that goes on. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. Sig is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, Sig Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, Sig Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military, the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. Amy Patrick, besides having bad taste in hockey, how do you oh. spend your time? <laughs> oh, I see how we're starting this off right away. Yeah. yeah I get the tone. Okay. People need to know. People need to know. All right. Well, I, I, before we say anything else, shall we talk about the fact that I'm ahead in our bet though? We um, want to talk about bad hockey. We don't need to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> what did you say? I didn't, I got distracted by bad hockey. What did you even say? How do you spend your time? I spend a lot of my time right now um, on my job working for Oregon Hunters Association. So what is the Oregon Hunters Association? Uh, OHA is the largest state-centric hunting organization for Oregon, um, so we're pretty proud of that. Um, we work really closely with a lot of other sportsmen's groups like RMEF and National Turkey Federation, but um, we are state-centric. We're not national, and so everything that we do and raise uh, stays right here in Oregon. Uh, all the battles that we fight um, are Oregon-centric, uh, so we're pretty proud of that. Yeah, um, and there's a lot of battles to fight. There are uh, a surprising amount, uh, actually. Um, I think more than most folks um, realize, you know, how many are out there and we're just trying to keep them all at bay. So what's the alligator closest to the boat right now? Um, you know, I would say it's IP 13, except that I think that alligator um, is a little sickly. I, I don't know if we, we got to focus on it as much as, as I thought we were going to have to. Um, I honestly think it's... Um, uh, it's more of a, a, a coalesced effort that we need to worry about, um, what we're seeing in the Western States right now. Okay. So, yeah. IP, th IP 13. I've been 
so reluctant to do a show on this. <laughs> I know. Because um, I think <laughs> I think it's ridiculous. And it is ridiculous. But there was a time where the threat started to feel a little bit real. Um, it came up for Oregon and Colorado, I believe. Yep. Yeah. It, it and I'm not going to say it's not real because we still have to get to July. Um, they have until July to gather 112,020 signatures. Um, but every month that goes by, I'm feeling a little bit better uh, about it. Um, I watch their financials with the, the secretary of state, um, like a hawk. I watch their social media and I listen to their, you know, podcasts and things that they do. And, you know, that's, those are hours of my life that I'll never get back, but you pick up some pretty interesting little uh, tidbits on it, but they haven't generated um, uh, support from national groups. Nobody's funding them right now. Their account um, is less than $3,000. So while like, I don't want to take the foot off, you know, the pedal uh, as far as, you know, being ready to defend against it. I'm feeling a little bit more confident that because they aren't using paid signature gatherers um, that they will have a hard time reaching that, uh, that mark by July. It's a surprisingly low mark though. Uh, And that's one of the reasons why they, they identified that they chose Oregon. We have the initiative petition process in the state and we have a very low threshold to get something on the ballot. Uh, They're pretty, they're pretty aware of those, those markers in the States they choose to, to, target. And you're right. They, they went with Colorado first IP 16, the pause act. That's what it was called in Colorado. Um, they started there. The gentleman who filed IP 13, uh, is from Colorado. He's pretty open about the fact that he's worked with those folks. So we know that it's, you know, they're tied together and it's a concerted effort. Um, Colorado was able to strike theirs down, um, as a violation of the single subject rule. So they're, single subject rule statutes are a little tighter. Their animal abuse statutes are written a little bit differently than ours. So they were able to use that. We weren't able to, we had a legal team look at it and see, um, and they weren't, they weren't um, confident that we could do that. So we weren't able to stop it before it got started basically like Colorado did. Okay. So let's, let's take a step back and talk about what IP 13 is. Yeah, that would be smart. Right. Um, So IP 13, um, it is branded as um, stopping animal abuse, stopping the exemptions to animal abuse. And that's what they're hanging their hat on. Their messaging is that, oh yeah, Oregon has animal abuse statutes, but it it has all these exemptions. And and those exemptions mean that farm animals and wildlife are not protected uh, the same as domestic animals are. Um, And so that's how they're billing it. That's how they are they're collecting signatures under that moniker of, you know, stop animal abuse. What it really does is it goes into um, Oregon's animal abuse statutes and there's a list of exemptions that protect certain activities. So it protects things like rodeos and fairs. Um, it protects commercial poultry, but it also protects um, legal hunting, fishing, and trapping in the state. It protects wildlife management. Um, and basically it protects our right or our ability to, to slaughter animals uh, humanely. So um, the best way I've used to talk to people about it is my life. I live on a little farm. Uh, we have chickens, we have cattle. Um, you know, my husband hunts, I like to fish. Every one of those things would be at risk if IP 13 were to pass because it would essentially create a no kill sanctuary state. Um, so you couldn't raise a couple steers in the pasture and put them in your freezer to offset your grocery costs. 
Um, you couldn't fish, you couldn't hunt. Um, it w- it's a very, um, very extreme animal rights and vegan uh, agenda that they're pushing. And they consider uh, milking cows to be a, a sexual act. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So they want to um, change the abuse or the, yeah, the abuse statutes um, so that any artificial insemination, anything like that, that would be what we would consider just standard practice uh, in, in a farming or ranching situation, um, anything like that would be considered sexual assault. And the kicker is if you have minors with you, uh, it then becomes a class C felony. Um, so if you are hunting and you have a minor with you, if you are a grandfather teaching your grandkids how to fish, uh, you then become a felon with this. So it's um, to say it's egregious, to say it's you know ridiculous is is not off the mark at all. So, I mean, this seems like something that that could never pass. Uh, why is it worth your effort in your time, which you continue to spend a lot of time on this? Yeah. Um, because there are a lot of things I think that we've all seen pass in this state that a lot of us have thought, Oh, uh, that, that would never have passed. I don't know that anybody thought that they could walk around with drugs in their pocket and that would be legal. I don't think that back in 94 hunters really thought that we were going to lose the right to hunt with hounds. Um, and in that particular, uh, one, only three counties carried that. Um, and that's what we're looking at for this. We all know kind of how the political, um, landscape is in Oregon now, and we know which counties can, can sway the whole state. Um, so, and I gotta be honest, I think probably maybe 80% of people who get a voter, a voter pamphlet don't really read, uh, what these, these would do, right. They read, oh, this has this many, um, you know, statements for it. And this has this many statements against it. So I guess I'll vote this way. Um, you know, I'm not saying people are uninformed voters, but I kind of am saying people are uninformed voters. Well, they totally are. When I was on that commission to restructure ODFW and come up with some new efficiencies, there was a poll that went out statewide. Um, and one of the questions was, uh, do you know which agency manages fish and wildlife? And it came back at 11%. 11% of the people could say, yes, it is the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. And they hailed that as like a great victory. Like we had a really well-informed populace because in other states, it was single digits. That's crazy to me. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, and yet it's it's not surprising. That's not well-informed. When I, when I saw that, when I saw that survey and that's what came back, I was like, well, the rest of this is inadmissible. Like yeah. we, we don't, we don't care. We don't care what people think if, if they don't have this baseline of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would carry that into anything else. Like if I went to a mechanic and, you know, he'd scored an 11% on his transmission test, I wouldn't want that guy working on transmissions. Like he doesn't know enough, doesn't know enough to even get started. And I'm certainly not going to ask him about any other part of the vehicle right? Like this right. guy just doesn't know. So we have a population that is ill-informed for the most part. And, uh, and that's okay. Like you can't be an expert on everything. And, and I don't know about the inner workings of, of cities. I, I don't. Um, and if an issue came up that, that pertained specifically to what went on in a city, 
I probably wouldn't vote on it one way or another because that's honestly none of my business. It doesn't doesn't affect me. I don't have enough knowledge to go about it. And then you, if you have guys that are trying to solicit signatures for a petition like this, they're trying to spin it in a way that makes it seem really palatable. Like, oh, would you like to stop animal abuse? Sign here. Like, yeah, I'd sign that. I'm not into animal abuse. I love animals. Right. Um, sure. I'll sign that. If you can trick a hundred and how many? 112,000. 112, yeah. yeah. And 20 people into doing that. Um, now you've got a ballot measure, right? Right. Yeah. And, and it, the interesting then it's thing up is, to the population to vote on. And listening to one of his podcasts, and this was one that was, it was an interview he did with somebody, but, um, you know, he, he basically doubled down on it and, and said straight out, yeah, we're not really, if they don't engage us in asking, we have to show them the sheet, right? That legally says a, a summary of it. And he said, if, if they don't ask us, we're not really telling them that this criminalizes all killing of animals. Like we just want to get this on the ballot. Um, and, you know, so those are the kinds of things that you hear when you listen to his interviews and, and such, you know, things like that. And the fact that, you know, this is being brought by a guy who's never been around animals other than um, some, some domestic pets. Um, yeah. he, he's not an animal lover. He's not, you know, he's not been around any of this. Uh, he watched a documentary and, and that what, that's what makes him feel informed enough to, uh, to move this ballot. And this ballot what, measure. What was the documentary? Uh, Dominion. Huh. I've never done. seen it. I, I've not really, that one. you know, uh, wanted to pay it the time of day, but you know, it's just these, these things. And it's so difficult to, to listen to, um, you know, the rhetoric. And of course they're, they're really hanging their hat on, on animal ag. They're really going hard after animal ag. And of course, you know, quote unquote factory farms, which is interesting to me. And, and I'm going to see if I can get this thought out in the way that it is in my head, because in ag, what we've seen is we kind of have allowed large scale farming to be broken off and then vilified, right? You know, factory farming is this phrase that they use, but really a lot of the practices are the same. You know, people, sometimes people don't want to admit that, but a lot of farming and ranching practices are the same, whether you're running a, a, a huge amount of animals or you're running a small head of animals. Most people AI, most people, you know, use the same training techniques. Most people, you know, slaughtering is slaughtering. You know, it's not like you're going to get creative, really. Um, it's just the scale at which you do it. So we've kind of allowed factory farming to be broken off and then made a target and vilified, but it's actually caused you know, problems for everybody in, in ag and ranching. And I think it's the same way when we look at hunting, right? We've kind of let trophy hunting be broken off and then vilified, right? And so when you see a lot of the environmentalist groups go after hunting, they start there. They start with, you know, trophy hunting is terrible or, you know, th this is, this kind of hunting is terrible. And I just feel like that's a dangerous thing for us to do. Um, you know, once you start kind of letting pieces basically of what you do get broken off and, and identified as targets, you're opening up in my mind, you know, the, the entire activity because they're not going to stop there. You've just given them kind of a toehold. Um, and so that's a concern to me. And that's been, I would say that's been the, the silver lining of IP 13 is it has galvanized, um, sports groups, uh, like nothing else. Um, because, 
we've got right now this, this partnership that we've just built and it's come from IP 13. We wanted to try to do this for a long time because we, we do keep getting kind of these different attacks coming at us uh, in the legislature in petitions to ODFW, um, you know, ballot measures and things. Um, but we've all been a little bit too busy worrying about our own individual silos and particular areas, you know, of, of hunting and fishing to really pick our heads up and see the attacks uh, and how we need to be more unified. And so IP 13 kind of cut through all that and just said, listen, if, if this thing passes, it's not going to matter if you are a rifle hunter or a bow hunter, uh, it's going to be gone. Um, and so it, it's actually motivated a lot of groups to work together in a way that we haven't seen before. And I think that's probably going to be the best outcome from this, provided it doesn't get on the ballot. One of the biggest step ups that I've seen was the reaction to uh, the spring bear debacle in Washington. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've said it on here before, but Washington is one of the worst, if not the very worst states for non-residents to figure out how to hunt in. Um, it's really, truly awful. But sportsmen from all across the country who had never hunted in Washington and likely never will all came together to fight against that. And they started to recognize that. And now you've got things like howl.org that are stepping up and they're bringing to bear, you know, these really powerful tools like the internet to be able to get everybody together. And, and without a lot of effort, now you can go and you can, you can help these issues as they come up in, in other states. So it's not just every state fighting for itself against nationwide organizations. Now, we're actually starting to become a nationwide coalition of sportsmen who are fighting, you know, in, in all these individual states as they get attacked. So, yeah, it, I feel like we're starting to get smarter as a hunting community. And uh, and Howell is doing a, a, a really interesting uh, and, and powerfully good job with that. I'm, I'm proud of those guys in, in such a short amount of time, too. Yeah. You know, I what you're, what you're saying is so true because what, what I'm seeing is, um, so the, the partnership that we, we just put together. So Oregon now has the Oregon sportsman's conservation partnership. Um, and we just stood that up. Um, we had our first meeting in January. Um, and so, I mean, we're, we're off the ground, we're running, we've got a wildlife committee, we've got a fisheries committee, we've got a legislative committee. So all the committees are meeting and, and working on things and we're across the board in organizations. So we have RMEF is, is with us, uh, BHA, obviously OHA, um, but we got some, you know, some of the smaller groups as well. And so it's kind of elevating everybody to the same, the same level, whether you've got no staff, one staffer, or you're a national organization. Um, the key is we're all sharing information, right? We're all making each other aware of what's going on. And then that helps us to mobilize um, in a way that I don't think we have before. But I have to give kind of credit here because we modeled what we're doing after California. So California has their hunting and conservation coalition. Um, and that's headed by a gentleman named Bill Gaines, um, who's been a huge for us uh, in getting our organization off the ground. Um, and then now Colorado has just put together something similar. Um, and Washington is looking at doing the same thing. We had a few folks from Washington sit in on our inaugural meeting so that they could kind of get a, a vibe for what we were doing. And they're looking at doing something similar. And so 
that's exactly, you know, the states are starting to mobilize now um, and, and really starting to understand we've got to look not just at our own state, but, but the trend that's going on primarily along the Western states, um, which is honestly, these groups, these national enviro groups, they've kind of spent the last five to six years doing a lot of fear mongering. Um, and that has led to some really deep pockets for them. And so, you know, it, they all have a stable of lawyers. And right now they're just kind of probing the Western states, looking for soft spots where they can really be effective. Um, and so it, it really is needed for the sportsmen's groups to do this in their individual states. But now we're also making the jump to talk about, um, you know, maybe at the end of this year, the leadership from all these coalitions will be able to get together and talk. So you'll have leaders from California, Oregon, Colorado, Washington, anywhere else um, that, that is starting this up, getting together and, you know, sharing ideas, looking at what's, you know, coming down the pike as far as legislature and, and commission issues. I sat in on California's meeting and it's the same conversations. It's the same conversations that we're having in Oregon, just with a little bit of a different spin on it. Um, and the frustrations are the same. You know, we're all trying to find those solutions. So I'm, I'm encouraged um, by what I'm seeing happening with all these different groups coming together like that. So what else is going on um, in Oregon that we need to be aware of? Um, let's see. In Oregon right now, and for the last two years, I think um, one of the, the major topics that I, I don't know if people know about it or not, but um, beaver trapping. Beaver trapping has been uh, a major issue literally for two years. It came before the commission in June of 2020 um, for, the, for the most part. And the, there was a petition to ban beaver trapping on federal lands, on all federal lands in Oregon. Um, it's just a thinly veiled attempt to, to stop trapping, um, basically. But um, they've come before the commission twice. They've been denied twice. And in lieu of that um, decision, then the commission put together some work groups. So one work group uh, was to address beaver management uh, in Oregon, and one was to address uh, trap check intervals. It took a year to stand those up um, for various reasons, um, but they didn't start meeting until June of 2021. Um, and so that's been my life for the last two years, honestly, that the beaver trapping issue, which some people are like, why is OHA as involved in a trapping issue? But I will say that the number of times that the phrases hunting and trapping get conflated in those conversations is frightening. Um, and that's, that's why we're um, one of the main players, um, you know, standing right next to the trappers and also Farm Bureau, um, you know, the counties. Uh, cattlemen have not been as included as we would like to see them, but we had no control over um, how these work groups were set up, which is frustrating. Why do people want to end beaver trapping? Um, people want to end all trapping, but they have attached it to beavers because there is a perception out here in the West, particularly in Oregon, that beavers um, will save us from climate change. Um, hmm. they are unicorns, if you didn't know, um, that oh. are capable, they have superpowers, um, they're going to end climate change. They're going to suppress wildfires. Um, yeah, those little buggers can do it all apparently. So there's a huge push out here to, to protect beavers. Um, and it comes from, you know, this, this thought process, which isn't entirely wrong that they can engineer their own habitat. 
um, you know, because they can to a degree, you know, if, if you put a beaver in, in an area where they have the makings of some good habitat, they, they can do a lot with that. Um, if you put them in a very dry area or with a very incised creek um, or stream, they're not. Um, and that's just, you know, a fact of, of nature, basically. But there's a huge group in Oregon that, that believes that beavers are going to save us and we need to do everything we can to save the beaver. Um, and so that is where the anti-trapping folks have hitched their wagon. Um, and it's a, it's a mutually beneficial relationship between those, those uh, folks and uh, they push pretty hard on it. So in the beaver management work group, what we hear a lot is um, that uh, we need to be having more beaver on the landscape because more beavers on the landscape mean they're doing their, the habitat improvement. They're going to save salmon also. Um, and, you know, they're just going to be out there doing all this work that the unfortunate truth is that not all beavers make dams. Um, some are bank dwelling. Um, a lot of beaver dams are ephemeral. They're especially in the coast range over here, they get blown out in a year. Um, and so you're not seeing these long-term effects, um, without a lot of human intervention already going hand in hand with stream restoration and things like that. So yeah, it's kind of a big convoluted, uh, conversation, but at the base of it is a, a very serious anti-trapping movement. People who are pro beaver, as far as conservationists end up like really pro beaver. Oh, yeah. I don't know anybody who's like, eh, beavers are, yeah, okay, take them or leave them. Like people go really, really nuts over them and, and they do give them more credit than, than what they are due for, for, for my money anyways. And uh guy, there's a gentleman here locally that works on watershed stuff and he thinks that the beavers are the silver bullet and, and I might do a show with him at some point because I'm willing to learn. I really like analog beaver dams, um, which, you know, are, are easy to put in. Basically for those that don't know, an analog beaver dam is where you go out and you take, um, take posts and you shove them down into, into the riverbed um, and then you weave willows in and out of them. And you can set a dam wherever you want to do all the things that a beaver dam would do, but now you're controlling it. You're not leaving it up to a very large rodent to determine where this conservation or bank stabilization should occur. You're going out and doing it. And it's a great project to get the community and kids involved with. Like you can have all of the good with none of the bad. So analog beaver dams, fantastic. Actual beavers, often very problematic. So here on the Six Ranch where we've done all this river river restoration work over the last decade and longer, um, we're finally starting to get the trees that we planted growing to a point where they're casting shade over the water, which is the purpose of that tree being there. And the last two winters I've had beavers come through and kill a bunch of those trees. Super frustrating. Like that just set me back a decade on what I'm trying to do with cooling this water off and the pro beaver crowd comes back and they say, well, they didn't actually kill that tree. They just ate it. And now it's going to shoot out a bunch more sprouts. It's like, we're still a decade behind. Right. It was already trying to do that. Um, and they don't make dams here. It's too fast. It's like these, these are problem beavers. Do you have any idea what the beaver population is in the state of Oregon? I don't. And you know, the funny thing, ODFW doesn't either. Uh, yeah, nobody that does. doesn't surprise me. That doesn't nobody. surprise me. How many beavers are getting trapped on public land? 
Um, on public land, it's not as easy to define because um, in our trap check reporting, we don't have uh, a question uh, for, okay. for that. Um, but uh, I can tell you that the numbers of all beavers trapped across the state are shockingly low. We're talking about, and, and my numbers are old because um, ODFW published numbers are only good, I think, until I think the most recent is 2016 or 2018. Um, and at that time it was like 1300 beavers across the entire state um, that were taken in a year's time. So, which is nothing. That's no, nothing. There's, there's 160 roughly registered trappers in the state. And so what we, this is what I always find interesting or, or slightly amusing about the, the usual arguments we hear about trapping is Oh, tra- you know, trapping, it's, we got to save them. We got to save the beaver because, you know, so many people are trapping the beavers. That's got to be the main, that's the main reason why beavers are dying. That's the main mortality, right? It's, it's human caused mortality. And then in the next breath, they'll say, there's only 160 trappers. Like you're not disenfranchising that many people. So why not go ahead and make the legal? And I'm like, guys, you can't work both sides of the equation like that. You can't say, Oh, trapping is the main mortality because it's, it's being done so often. And then also say, oh, but there's only, you know, this small number of people. And so you're, you're not really hurting very many people. That's such a shitty attitude to be like, oh, there's only 160 people that this would affect. So let, let's go ahead and do it. Um, I, I hate that. If, if you did that about, about another minority group, that would okay. be so unacceptable. Like, oh, there's less of them. So let's just not worry about them. Right. Like, let, let's shove them aside. That's unacceptable. Well, and what it's failing to understand is that we're not here to protect the 160 trappers. I mean, we are, but that's not it. We're here to protect the opportunity, right? We're here to protect the opportunity of anybody who may want to go and do that. Just like, you know, and, and I relate this back to the bump that they've seen in license and tag sales in the last two years, right? Before COVID, hunter numbers and, and angler numbers were lower, right? And they've had this huge, they call it the COVID cohort, I think. Um, they've had this huge bump in, in numbers now in the last two years. That's opportunity. Those are opportunities. We, we've been protecting the opportunity for those people to do that. Should they find value or time or, or what have you um, to go out and hunt and fish and trap? That's what we're protecting uh, is, is that opportunity and that ability. It's not measured in how many are currently doing it it's how many you know can do it should they so choose um and that's you know it's something that falls on deaf ears a lot uh as does the north american model of wildlife conservation in these you know conversations so we we try to dig into that as, as much as we can and really make sure everywhere that we're coming from is is rooted in science and rooted in that kind of conservation minded uh, piece, but you know, I, honestly, I can't tell you how many times in these conversations we've been told that actual population numbers of beaver don't matter, uh, which is something really? to get. Yes, it is so. This work group probably talked past each other, I think, for the first couple months because the folks on the other side of the table they only care about what beavers are going to do on the landscape and the results on the landscape, and that's what they want to focus on because they want to focus on things that are hard to measure basically, um, and, and things that they think beavers can do. Uh, and I can't tell you how many times we've been told population numbers don't matter. And I'm like, well, then how are we supposed to develop metrics for management? 
um, if we're not dealing with a, a healthy population and we're not identifying population numbers, we're not gathering data uh, on any of that, we're not discussing what are the limiting factors for beavers, what are the, what are the biggest um, mortality causes? I mean, predation, anytime you mention predation, conversation has a way of, of uh, slowing way down, um, you know, and because nobody really wants to talk about the fact, fact that, you know, cats really like to snack on beavers, um, yeah. you know, so. Um, and wolves. Yep. Yeah. The fact is beaver is one of the most um, beneficial meats for predators to eat in the wintertime. Um, it's very rich, has a lot of fat in it, mm-hmm. and they're they're very sought out. And when they are on land, they're incredibly vulnerable as well. And they can't do much damage to a coyote or wolf or a mountain lion that wants to eat it. So here you have something that doesn't move all that fast. So it's not a huge expenditure of energy to kill it. It's not going to hurt you. And it's also a huge resource in nutrients. Like why wouldn't every animal out there want to eat them? It's like the Krispy Kreme of nature. Yep. Totally. So yeah, beavers get eaten. The other thing is like we owe beavers everything and we owe beaver trappers even more because without beaver trapping, we don't have a United States as we know it. We certainly don't have a Western United States. It's incredible to me that we can put a beaver on a, in the middle of the flag and be like, look, like we, we formed everything on this. And then be like, yeah, let's forget about that though. Let's just mm-hmm. let's just completely abandon our history and our culture and just not do that anymore. One of the things that I bring up all the time, and maybe it's a stupid argument because people don't take me seriously, but when they talk about being opposed to trapping, nobody's opposed to trapping mice, right? right. And what's different? What's yeah. different between trapping a mouse and trapping a beaver? I don't think that's a stupid argument. Honestly, I don't because uh, in the in the, some of the conversations around trapping that I've had, you know, everybody has their animal that they picture, right. In their mind, for some folks, it's coyotes, right. They, they really want to protect the coyotes for some people it's beaver. Um, you know, and I've had to remind them that guys, cause I, like I listen, I live in grass seed country over here, right. Everywhere around me is a grass seed field. And I can't tell you how many times I see those guys out there, on their four wheelers running, you know, for gopher traps, vole traps. Um, and, you know, you got to remind people that are t- when we're talking about trap check and damage control, that we're not just talking about the animal you have pictured in your mind, right? We're also talking about these rodents and these issues. And so anything that you're, you know, wanting to, to put up there as the, as the picture in your brain, it, it's not the, the whole picture. There's so much more that goes into it. Um, and why you've chosen to, you know, to focus on one is, I don't, I don't know why, but most folks it's, it's coyote and it's, it's the beaver trapping that they really get spun around. Yeah. Well, and I, I think there's probably a resistance to going out and collecting the data and understanding the population and understanding the, the animal a little bit better because without that data, you can make your decisions purely based on emotion. Yep. And, and it's easy to garner emotional support in absence of scientific data. Now, Washington took it a step farther and they had the data on their bears and went against that data yep. and chose, chose emotion instead. 
um, that's really upsetting that that a governor of any state would would create a commission of, of fish and wildlife that that would make a decision like that. That's that's a shame. Shame on them. It and that's one thing I think too that uh, I would hope more people know about this. But I I guess I'm finding in, in more conversations that that maybe people people aren't as aware of, of it. But you know the commission is as at the discretion of the governor. I mean, the governor appoints, you know, this very well, right? The governor appoints the commission members. And so when I talk to people and they're so frustrated with ODFW um, and they're, they're frustrated with management decisions that they've made, or why aren't they doing this? Or why, you know, why are they doing these things? Um, you know, I, I give a lot of credit to ODFW staff Um these folks are biologists, you know, they, they do this for a living. They're well-educated people. For the most part, any local bio that you would go talk to, um, and, and for me, the staff members that I work with, man, they are on it. They're, they know, right? And, and they know what needs to happen and they know what's going on. Um, the unfortunate thing is that they run up against this, this ceiling called the commission, right? And they may have Great science. And, and I'll be honest, I've seen it in, in Oregon's commission. You know, the, the staff has brought forward great science, um, a, a recommendation based in, in science, um, months and months of work that they've done to, to put into what they're bringing before the commission. And, and, and the commission doesn't always listen to them. Um, and so um, I have a lot of conversations with hunters about that and that, you know, you can be frustrated that I totally understand that. Um, but make sure you're, you understand, you know, what these guys are up against sometimes and why some things are happening and, and other times not. I mean, predator management, that's, that's the, the pinnacle of that discussion, right? If you go talk to, to local bios, they're going to, they know what's going on out there. They, they know what should be happening. But if you go to the commission level with anything about predator management, you're, you're going to get, you know, it's, it's a long road to get them to agree to that, um, and, and I think in Oregon, I will say we're, we're making some strides. The la our last appointment, um, commission appointment, was surprising. Um, and I, I have high hopes, uh, you know, for her. Um, she's a, a medical doctor, um, but she's also a master hunter. She's got a trapping license. She's an avid duck hunter. Um, she's an angler. Um, and, you know, she's one of, I think, only two commissioners who are familiar with the e-licensing because she's had to use, utilize it as a user. Um, and so um, that's been an interesting change of events for the commission. And I, I'm a little hopeful that we have, you know, folks who understand a little bit more about how things work um, and, and what hunters and anglers provide, um, you know, financially and on the conservation end of things, too. Yeah. It provide a lot. Yeah. Um, it, it's not only funding, but it's data, it's, it's interaction. Um, they're, they're the force hunters and anglers are, are the force behind all conservation yep. in North America. And it's again, goes back to the North American model. Right. Um, yeah. and you know, we, uh, we're OHA just started a new learn to hunt program. Um, and, and we've spent about a year and a half building this. And one of the main classes um, that we're putting together is a review or, and a, just an educational piece on the North American model. Because I think everybody needs to know it and understand it. 
and this is coming from somebody, you know, um, who didn't grow up around it. Right. I, I'm not a hunter. Um, even though I, I work for the hunting association, um, I just grew up on a farm that, you know, it was a Christmas tree farm and we raised cattle and our freezers were never empty. Um, so we didn't need the meat and every fall was getting ready for, or in harvest, uh, time. So I just didn't grow up around hunting. I didn't know about the North American model of wildlife conservation until I started working for OHA. So in my mid forties, right. Um, and I had to learn really, really fast about it. And it's amazing. I, I think, I think it's an amazing way to manage wildlife. And I'm really like passionate now about every new hunter needs to understand this. It's not just go buy your license and your tag and, and put an animal in your freezer. I mean, that's the goal, but you've got to understand, in my opinion, you got to understand the underpinnings of it all. Um, because if you don't, then you don't understand the funding structure for ODFW and you don't understand the con the, the real conservation work that goes on. And you don't understand the attacks against it then, right? You don't understand the, the attacks of wanting to shift funding to something that's not um, hunting and angling related um, because the envios think it's a good idea and they want money over here. But the reality is they're hunter and angler dollars. So they have to be spent over here. Um, and, you know, you just have to have that kind of underpinning. And that, again, that's coming from somebody who had a crash course in it three years ago. So. I think it's super well, important. I think it is too. Um, I should probably do a show and get into all the tenets of the North American model so that people understand it because typically that's where it stops. You know, people say, oh, the North American model. And then they might be like Pittman Robertson or mm -hmm. Kimball Johnson. Kimball Johnson. <laughs> and it's like, mm, okay, there's so much more to it. And now it really isn't the time and place. I'll get into, I'll, I'll do a show on it sometime. That would be good. Um, Okay. Um, is there anything else that we need to know about besides uh, people that want to ban all hunting, trapping, and agriculture um, and beaver trapping? Um, you know, I, I, and I know, especially in your part of the world, um, I'm, I preach into the choir when I say this, but I think that um, obviously the wolf issue is going to be something that's going to be just a, a a hot button topic. Um, you know, we're two years out from the five-year review for the wolf plan and that's going to be contentious in the last, um, legislative session here, just this year. Um, there was a bill, um, by representative Levy just asking for, uh, an appropriation of money into the fund that pays out, um, for wolf depredation, confirmed livestock, uh, depredation, um, and loss. Um, and it wasn't creating the fund. Obviously that was already, um, set up in the wolf plan. Um, it wasn't changing how any of those, that money is spent. It was simply asking for funds to, to fund that program. Um, and it was two days of, um, of environmental backlash in, in the testimonies, you know, um, and this is my and this, this is maybe a little bit off topic, but this is my frustration. Listening to those um, folks give testimony, they, they, it's, it's slanderous. It's, it's just downright slanderous and you can't push back because everybody gets their three minutes to talk, right? And so you can't, 
you can't call them on it. And they make the best use of that opportunity um, to just say things that are patently false, to be slanderous of, of livestock and land managers, you know, saying that they're intentionally defrauding uh, the fund or that they're um, just being negligent and losing animals and then turning it into the fund for reimbursement. And um, it's just really, really frustrating to hear, but it was a very clear signal um, that they will be coming in hard on this, uh, the review, the five-year review um, when we, when we open that plan back up and take a look at it, um, there were, there were many signals that they're going to come in hard on that. So that'll be the next, um, policy fight, I think, um, in the next two years. Um, you know, hopefully once we get done with the trapping issues. That's really, uh, really courageous of those folks to go after cattlemen and, and say that, you know, the damage that they're incurring from wolves doesn't need to be compensated. What, what a bunch of heroes. Right. Well, it you know, they so live in hard. Portland and so they're yeah. more educated. Uh, they, yeah. they know I have to share this, this testimony that came in uh, last year about the beaver. There was a beaver, two beaver bills that were run. Um, but one in particular wanted to remove it from the predatory animal status, which basically is means that if they're causing problems on private land that the private landowner can deal with those. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's administered by ODFW, but also by Oregon Department of Ag. Um, and so folks wanted to get that, them removed from that. And one of the, the testimonies that came in, I thought, man, this just checks every box. Um, I think I actually saved it just because it was so condescending. Um, you know, it was this little paragraph and it said, you know, I, I moved to Oregon, you know, several years ago. Um, I've read a lot of books on beavers. Um, and you know, farmers and ranchers just need to be educated. They, they yeah, need to, they sure. need to be educated to learn how to coexist. And I went, wow, that was like the trifecta of condescending, you know, condescending attitude from somebody in a, an urban area, you know, just perpetuating this idea that farmers and ranchers, you know, don't, don't have education behind them, don't know what they're doing. So, yeah. They're just a bunch of dummies out here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> mucking let, around. Let me, let me tell you how you should do this. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. And yeah. uh yeah, I mean, cities are just such such good wildlife habitat. You know, that's yeah. really the model that that I should be considering. Um, yeah, as, as a steward here is just kind of getting as as many people in as tight an area as possible, um, covering everything in concrete. And then uh, just providing a lot of drugs just to yeah. kind of, yeah. you know, I think the next time that you're out on your property, you need to stop and look around and go, hmm, what would Portland do? <laughs> yeah. And then, I'm, and I'm, then, you know, take that into I'm going to do that later today. Yeah. I'm going to do that later <laughs> today. Put that at the top of my priority list. Right. No, it, it's tough. And, and, you know, in the same way that I might feel that, you know, they just don't understand. They're not educated. That, that's how they're feeling about me too. And that's why communication has to be a big part of this. Mm -hmm. And, and we've got to, we've got to be able to move science into public knowledge in a better way. One of my, one of my biggest struggles on this show is every time I reach out to a scientist who is um, actively studying something, they won't come on the show. Um, they're, they're afraid to, 
and they'll end up um, finding their results. If they're lucky, they get it published in, in some scientific journal that other scientists read. And that's where the information dies. It never actually gets out to the public. So this, this problem of, of the ill-informed um, is a real problem. And it, it's a problem all the way around. And our ability to access this information uh, is getting harder, not getting easier. Um, our ability to access information is, is much easier, but it's not necessarily good information. It's, uh, it's almost never peer-reviewed, for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it is interesting what we find now or what I find now is, you know, the dueling science, right? Each side's going to throw, throw science at it. Um, And really being able to look at those things, uh, those documents and, and, and see, okay, you know, have these been published? Have they been peer reviewed? Who funded them? Right. Um, And, and what was the, the reason why they were put together? Uh, Was that a driver towards the outcome? Um, And, I think one of the things that, that I think is um, at the heart of all this too, is just, you know, folks like to get out to nature, but, but it's a visit, you know, it, it's a visit for a lot of people. It's, it's not um, where they live and it's not what they understand. And I will say, you know, one of the commissioners had a really great, uh, you know, we were, we were having a conversation about uh, several of the topics and, um, she said, you know, we can't, there's this, this misnomer that we can't be in nature and respect nature and still eat. Um, and I thought, you know, that's a great, it's a great statement. Um, because it, it's so true, right? It doesn't mean that you're, it's mutually exclusive. You, you can be in nature all, t- all the time. I mean, look at you, look at, look at anybody who's, you know, makes a living at it. Um, and still eat. And those things are not diametrically opposed. Um, there's no lack of respect there. Um, you know, it is, it is part of everything that, that we do. So yeah. I just thought that was a good takeaway. If anything, it's, it's more respectful to, to understand the process and to be a participant in it um, rather than just uh, some fifth or sixth party consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and not everybody today has that opportunity and and they're not going to, there's too many people, there's not enough resource available. Um, So very fortunate for those of us um, who do still get to get out there and, and, and be a part of it because not everybody does. If they could, it would be great. um, But the resource can't support it. So um, that's another thing that we've got to acknowledge. Like there has to be a limit on how many people are actually going out and hunting and fishing, um, mushrooming, whatever, consuming natural resources, because we have more people than we have natural resources available, which is why we probably, for the time being, need commercial agriculture to be able to feed everybody, because it's the most efficient means we have of being able to do so. So if you like eating food, and if you like being supported by all the people who do things for you, um, who also eat food, <laughs> then, you know, then for now, um, we're doing the best we can. We're yep. doing the best we can. And don't talk yeah. with your mouth full, right? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> yeah. Every, everybody's only seven meals away from anarchy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. You get, get hungry and see what you still believe in. <laughs> well, and, and, uh, you know, you, 
I don't know anybody who would look at these last two years and the the panic uh, over the supply chain and when COVID first hit, you know, the empty store shelves. I mean, people did not know what to do with themselves, right? Um, and then I, suddenly we had more people hunting and fishing than we right. ever had. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know, and so it's it's funny how quickly we we come back to that, but. Um, yeah, people, people get really freaked out as soon as, uh, their favorite brand of something isn't on the shelf. So should, uh, should people who hunt in Oregon be members of the Oregon Hunters Association? Absolutely. Yes. What do they, what do they get out of that? Uh, they get to be part of the organization that really is in all the rooms right now. Um, I'm just gonna, you know, blow our own horn here for a minute, but OHA is in so many spaces and so many conversations right now. We're not a huge staff, but we cover a tremendous amount of topics um, and work as closely as we can with ODFW um, staff. We're in the legislature. We're working with the the legislators and the decision makers there. Um, You know, we're in stakeholder groups and work groups and you know, we're all supposed to be kind of part-time hours and every single one of us could work full-time and still have things that we, you know, couldn't get on, on our plate as far as topics that we're covering. So, um, we really strive hard to be the voice for Oregon hunters, whether you're a member or not, we're out there advocating for you. Um, and so if you become a member, um, you know, we do the Oregon hunter magazine, uh, six times a year. So you automatically get that. Um, we do a calendar that everybody tells me is really, really cool. Um, as a non-hunter, it just looks like a calendar to me, but apparently it's really cool for hunters because it's got all the tag, like buy your tag by this time for this, you know, this season, which, you know, I hear that's a big deal. Um, so, (laughs) so, uh, it's, it's pretty useful. Um, and then you get to be involved in our chapter. So we have 26 chapters around the state, whatever one's closest to you, you can get involved in. Um, we do a lot of projects, conservation work, um, whether that's raising money for wildlife crossings or actually getting out and building guzzlers um, or replanting after fires. Um, there's a whole lot of boots on the ground um, conservation projects that each chapter goes out and does. And so it's a really great social atmosphere. It's a really great conservation uh, minded organization. Um, and yeah, we'll put you to work, um, if you become a member and that's a good thing. How do people do it? Where do they find out more? Uh, so you can go to our website, which is, uh, Oregon hunters, make sure you get the S in there. So oregonhunters.org. Uh, and there is a join button, uh, in there. And you can also read more about the work we're doing, um, on wildlife crossings, uh, and in the legislature and maybe even find a banquet uh, that's close to you because right now is banquet season. So most of the chapters are doing their annual banquets. Everybody's really excited to get back to in-person banquets for the most part. Um, I've been to a couple so far and they've been packed and a whole lot of fun. And, you know, generally they give a lot of, give away a lot of cool stuff, like a lot of guns and things like that. So it's a good time. What's it cost to be a member? Uh, it's $35 for a year. 35 bucks. Not yeah, too bad. It's not bad at all. Yeah. We don't gouge you. Uh, you can do multiple years at different price points. Um, I think three years is $90. You can do a family, uh, membership for 10 bucks more. Um, but yeah, we're, we're very reasonable that way. And we don't, um, you know, hound you throughout the year for more money. You pay your 35 bucks, you're in. 
You're in the okay. in the cool club. All right. Check it out. Oregon Hunters Association um, out there fighting the good fight for everybody. And uh, and and seriously, like I, I don't have time to run to every commission meeting that's a 14 hour drive away from me and, you know, get my three minutes to talk that that isn't necessarily a, a good use of my time. So having somebody that can represent me like Oregon Hunters Association is hugely beneficial. And um, one thing that I'll absolutely say for you guys is uh, you, the commission listens to you more than any other group. Like you've got a really strong foothold there. And that has come from uh, years and years of, of trust and working together and finding solutions. And I commend you for that. And I recommend you personally for taking all this on. And I, I really want to thank you for everything that you've done because um, you're doing it for, for other people. You know, this isn't, this isn't just benefiting Amy. Um, this is benefiting all the, all the hunters and anglers <laughs> and trappers in the yep. state of Oregon. You're, you're doing awesome. Proud of you. Well, I appreciate it. And I'm glad we finally had a chance to talk. Yeah, me too. All right. Thank you, Amy. Yep. So I found this old ad and there's like dudes dressed up like construction workers and a guy's got a jackhammer and there's a crane and you know, they're moving all these big steel beams and stuff. Aladdin Stanley Thermos. Stanley, the top all-steel thermos model that's completely dependable. They're showing this thermos, like, falling off this building and hitting all this other construction stuff. And built to take a bounding year after year. <laughs> Get the top one. Oh, it's a wheelbarrow. Guy grabs it out of the wheelbarrow. Now he's going to pour himself a cup of coffee. I love these cheesy old ads. And most of the time, like, they're lying to us, right? That's most of what marketing used to be was just, like, telling a lie or, or at least telling a version of a lie that, that made you think that you needed this thing. But I'll tell you what, when it's cold out like it is right now, the only way to keep liquid liquid and not freezing in your pack is by putting it in something that's insulated. So packing a thermos in the wintertime is really smart, whether it's for a hot beverage like coffee or if you just want to bring some water with you, which is a really important thing if you're going to be out adventuring around in this uh, in this snow that we've got all over the country. And I think you should be because it's a great time of year to get out and about. You know, this is both a comfort and a safety thing. If you want to get something from Stanley, which I encourage you to do, you can use the discount code 6RANCH. That's the number 6 in the word ranch. And that'll get you 25% off of just about anything on their website encourage you to do that. They're great supporters of the show and uh, great supporters of this audience. And I love you guys. So stay warm out there, have a nice warm drink and uh, make sure you're drinking it out of a Stanley product. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.